How much do you know about the effects of alcohol during pregnancy? The reality may surprise you. Alcohol exposure while in the womb can damage the brain of the developing baby, causing it to develop fetal alcohol spectrum disorder or FASD. It may lead to lifelong physical and or neurodevelopmental impairments such as problems with memory, attention, cause and effect reasoning, and difficulties in adapting to situations. For such an impactful disorder, it is rarely spoken about in the popular media. No FASD Australia's podcast series is designed to raise awareness and understanding of FASD by giving listeners an opportunity to hear from those who have the deepest understanding of the impacts of FASD. This is Pregnancy, Alcohol and FASD, The Surprising Reality. Today's episode features an interview with a university researcher who has a passion for educating communities about FASD and improving the interactions between those who are affected by FASD and the professionals who are working with them, with the goal of achieving better, more holistic outcomes. You'll learn about her latest research, which focuses on the development of an Australian FASD Indigenous framework. Of course, it is important to remember that while FASD is an issue of concern in many Indigenous communities, it is certainly not confined only to Indigenous communities. FASD can and does occur wherever alcohol is consumed. It's now my pleasure to introduce you to the host of No FASD's podcast series, Kurt Lewis, who will introduce you to his guest for this special episode. Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this brand new episode of Pregnancy, Alcohol and FASD, The Surprising Reality. My name is Kurt Lewis, your friendly neighborhood podcaster. In this episode, I'm chatting with a researcher and a project manager at the University of Queensland, a proud Palawa woman who is undertaking a PhD focusing on the development and implementation of Australia's first FASD Indigenous Framework. A very big welcome to Nicole Hewlett. How's it going, Nicole? Oh, good, Kurt. Thank you. That was a very passionate welcome. (laughs) I love being here. Thank you. I aim to please. I aim to please. (laughs) So, you know, the first question, how did you first learn about FASD? Disappointingly, actually. (laughs) I went through four years of a psychology degree and an additional two years of a Master's of Public Health. And not once in that six years of education do I remember FASD coming up. That included a child development, you know, 101 in psychology. There was one slide that I vaguely remember about the one of the consequences of women that had substance disorders and the impacts on bub. But other than that, nothing, there was absolutely nothing around FASD. And it wasn't until I took on a project at Menzies School of Health Research here, I fell into it. I just wanted to work at Menzies. So it wasn't necessarily the project that I was interested in or the content. As you do as a project manager, you learn all about what your deliverables are and and the project was focused on training the health workforce in fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. 
And that is when I discovered everything there is to know. And, you know, that first moment, and I think a lot of people can probably relate to this, but that moment where you're like, how is this not everywhere, like this information? How is this not damped on every alcohol bottle, just everywhere? And I was mortified. And also a sense of sadness that I had access to this knowledge and so many people don't because I would have absolutely thought that, like probably many Australians, that once I tested for pregnancy, that's when it starts counting. So not before. So I would have probably drunk right up until that test if I'd even known that I was pregnant and not understood the kinds of risks I was taking. And my heart just goes out to those that don't have that knowledge. And I think the injustices around that makes for my passion in this space just that much more. Sounded like you started making like connections there. And I find when, especially when I kind of fell into it as well, you kind of make connections on stuff you you didn't realise that was there in terms of. Hugely in your family. It's an unveiling right? Like it's like this veil has been put up around society. And then once you see it, you wonder like, how did you not see it before? It's just such a revelation. And then everything, you can't avoid seeing it. It's everywhere. And the relationship with alcohol and the influences of the industry on Australian society also get revealed. It's like you've just realised how long you've been cheated, <laughs> you know, like you, you sort of just, yeah, wake up. And that just felt like my experience. And I was in utter disbelief that I could be privileged enough to be so well educated and yet not know of one of the most harmful consequences in public health and in psychology out there today. So how did you go from doing a kind of a job to making it part of your PhD? So I am a very reluctant PhD <laughs> student. I don't like to refer to myself as researchers. I find that a very dirty word. But I guess I fell into this PhD as well. Like I've never really been someone that kind of plans a career pathway at all. I just sort of take one step in front of the other and then, you know, where I land, I land. And I have always remained in I suppose, the FASD space and with the No FASD family ever since that project and done a lot of work around it just because that it's in your blood now and so you, you're driven by this passion. And, of course, that passion is contagious and it's shared and, and we're all in solidarity around this. And, and then I connected with other people in the space, researchers, and one of those people was Dr Natasha Reed, and she got funding to revise the Australian guidelines for assessment and diagnosis of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And she asked me to come in and, and support the, the cultural perspectives and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice and advise on how we might better embed that into the mainstream guideline to support clinicians and any health professional working in the space on how they might best support Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clients across Australia around diagnosis and FASD. And from there, yeah, it just 
became a PhD, I feel like I got ambushed a little bit, <laughs> a little bit into it. But for good purposes, I'm sure the ancestors know what they're doing. But yeah, I, I always twitch a little bit when someone introduces me as, you know, someone that's doing their PhD. I'm like, oh, I'm one of those people now. <laughs> Speaking of your PhD, you were the lead author in a recently released research article called The Development of an Australian FASD Indigenous Framework, Aboriginal Healing-Informed and Strengths-Based Ways of Knowing, Being and Doing. In this article, you and your other co-authors propose Australian Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder Indigenous Framework. Could you explain the key points about the framework to the listeners? Sure. As I said, when Natasha asked us to come along and advise on how to embed Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander perspectives into the mainstream guideline, it became really apparent that it wasn't enough just to add little text boxes here and there because there was so much more to the story that needed to be told. Our voice really needed to be embedded in a practical way that really supported workforce on the ground, both non-Indigenous and our Aboriginal communities. And so it turned into a mammoth journey, which, I mean, I might have been the lead author on that, but I cannot emphasise enough that the knowledge that we collaborated on is neither my knowledge nor is it new knowledge. And a lot of it was informed by just some of the most incredible Aboriginal demigods that we have in the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder space. And that really cultivated the richness in this framework. And essentially what the framework is, is an understanding and also a toolkit around, firstly, what do non-Indigenous clinicians need to know, be and do in order to deliver culturally responsive, healing-informed and strength-based access to, say, FASD knowledge, resources, supports, assessments and diagnosis, so all of it for our people. And then on the other side of that, there's also things that our people need to know, be and do. And so the framework also looks at, well, what at our community level do we need to know, be and do to access those FASD resources as well? Because it takes a whole of society to create access and equity around fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, whether it be knowledge, whether it be assessments, whether it be a diagnosis. And so the framework is essentially around that. It is highlighting what we've found around both Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but also non-Indigenous clinicians, what all of us need to know, be and do to have equity and access to FASD assessments and diagnosis. Access and equity, that's brilliant, really, in terms of FASD diagnosis, because FASD diagnosis is one of those things that a lot of people don't have access to. And there's not a lot of what I would call equity in how FASD is treated, especially by people who don't understand this invisible disability. In in terms of this framework, how is this different to the approach being currently being used? What are the benefits in comparison? And you hit you know, the nail on the head, then there is an approach right now. And there's definitely no 
approach that specifically supports our people in accessing knowledge, resources and assessments and diagnosis for FASD. So it benefits in the fact that it's a starting point. It's definitely not a magic bullet. It's not a panacea. And we're not saying that what we found in this is going to work for every single community, but it's something. It's something that if an Aboriginal health worker on the ground in whatever community discovers FASD and has a passion to do something in their community around it. This is what we found that perhaps might be useful as a starting point so that they're not just left alone without any support or feeling hopeless about seeing a situation in their community and and not feeling like they're equipped to address it in any way. And on the other side of it, We've got a lot of description around what non-Indigenous clinicians can know about our community, but we've got very little in terms of what can they do? Like, how do they apply the knowledge that they have around supporting our people in this space? And that's what the toolkit offers for non-Indigenous clinicians. We've provided practical things like what can they do in their practice to support our people and our access in a way that is healing-informed and strength-based. So essentially it offers pathways for... Absolutely. In your research article, one of the things you mentioned in in terms of medical and other professionals, they can find it are very difficult to speak to Aboriginal people about FASD. It can be considered kind of like a major barrier people find in, in addressing this invisible disability, essentially. What do you believe are the major barriers in speaking about FASD? Just generally speaking about FASD, I think it's a really difficult topic for someone that might not have the confidence and the knowledge around it because we've all grown up in a society that has often a blame and shame approach when it comes to health behaviours. So if someone gets diabetes, then obviously they're eating too much of this, or if they get lung cancer, then they've smoked this. And, And while, yes, this increases your risk, the narratives sitting behind these things are always blame and shame. And FASD is no different, where if a mother, and she's usually singled out as the solely responsible person is held up as the person that drank during pregnancy and caused harm to her baby, then we blame and shame. And it might be unconscious, but it's there. And those narratives are very deficit, which is why the Western framework can be strengthened by Aboriginal understandings of things like disability, because our worldview is inherently strength-based and we can offer a lot to the Western understandings and worldview in health to support better support to to all Australians because it cuts through those blame and shame, that kind of stigmatising approach that is often threaded in society. But I think there are ways around it and using strength-based approach and understanding that FASD isn't totally preventable. And that's another message that seeks to blame and shame because many women don't know they're pregnant or many women aren't educated about FASD and the risks, so they're not making informed choices. So it isn't totally preventable. There are others that have been deeply traumatised and for generations 
that might have a substance dependency. It's not a choice that they're taking. No one wants to willingly harm their baby. So, yes, it is difficult for health professionals to talk about this if they are not willing to go on a critical reflection journey around questioning some of the narratives and perhaps even their own relationships with alcohol. There's an interesting dichotomy in terms of alcohol is the only drug where you can simultaneously be judged for consuming too much but also not consuming enough. Oh, and we see it everywhere. And the conflict that underpins it all is I think it highlights just how insidious the alcohol industry is in terms of having all of these unconscious messaging that's threaded through society that goes unquestioned because it's not so obvious that it's just present and they use fun Australian culture to make this product or this drug a part of the Australian identity. And when you do that, I mean, it's very clever, but when you do that, if you make something like that a part of your identity, yes, you absolutely get, one, the message of you should drink responsibly, but, I mean, we all know that that's probably not a very genuine commitment by the industry, but also this narrative or this belief that if you're not participating in drinking, then you're not participating in our culture. And that's the subliminal message that, that's playing out there. People have attached this to being part of who they are. And if you do not participate in that, then you are saying that you don't want to be part of who I am. People ultimately feel judged by someone who doesn't drink in terms Absolutely. of... Absolutely. Mm. And, and you will find that they feel wary of mm. that person that doesn't drink. Like there is a trust issue, which is interesting, that occurs. And and why is that? Why do people get so uncomfortable about someone not drinking? What does that say about that person? Because it's coming from the person with that is often called as, you know, aggressive hospitality, like drink, 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 drink. But, yeah, if someone does that, it's important that they have an awareness of where does that come from? Like, what is it about this other person not drinking that makes you so uncomfortable in this moment? I also found it interesting when you were speaking before, in terms of like Western medicine, you mentioned that it looks at the more of the deficits rather than looking at a strengths-based approach. Do you think there's a benefit to more looking at the strengths rather than the deficits? Oh, absolutely. So if you're looking for problems, you'll find problems. It's really as simple as that. And this fix-it attitude only targets and silos on problems. And it doesn't look at the broader picture. And if you're not looking at the broader picture, the entire person, the being, the setting they're in, you're not going to address much because a human being isn't just eyes. It's not just a mouth. It's not just an arm. But if we're only targeting specific areas, then you are missing the entire other parts connected to that spirit. And the other side of that is a strength-based approach has been shown time and time again to undermine stigma. And that is a critical thing in all areas of health, but especially so in FASD. How do we address stigma at a society level? Well, one approach is focusing on 
all of the incredible strength that people with FASD have, and they are abundant as they are varied. And I think, how do we find ways to celebrate that and support those strengths? Because there is so much that can benefit society by drawing on the strengths of those living with FASD. I honestly couldn't agree more. And I think they're very underestimated by people sometimes. Oh, constantly, constantly. And that's because we look at the deficit. We look at where their challenges are, not where their strengths are. All have challenges, all of us. Of course we do. So it's, and it's no different for someone living with FASD. Their challenges are different to our challenges, mm. but their strengths are different to our strengths. But it doesn't in any way mean that they can't participate meaningfully at all points in time in their life. One of the issues that is identified in the article is the issue of time, particularly the time that it takes to build the required trust between professionals and clients to enable an open and respective discussion around FASD. Is the challenge of building this trust a common issue for the Indigenous populations in Australia? And if yes, why? We can't really respond to that question unless we talk about history. And and the story needs to be told that, and it's a story about how the West came to Australia and colonised this country, and in doing so broke our trust, and how ongoing ignorance, how ongoing attitudes, treatment of our people keep that trust broken. And even the Western frameworks, where they look at deficits and problems. And we've been described many a time throughout history as the Aboriginal problem. This language, these narratives that underpin attitudes to our people, they sustain this broken trust. And we have learned from experience in each of our lives that we should not trust the health system. We should not trust any Western system because it will lead us to having our children taken away. It will lead us to being incarcerated. It will lead us to death in terms of going to hospital. So there are many reasons why we don't trust and they're validated reasons and they're often validated for families weekly. And so the time is really required because that is what is needed to heal that trust. We need time to build a relationship with you, with non-Indigenous clinicians. Otherwise, we can't find a way to connect to you. We can't find a way to understand your place in this world and in the dreaming and in the broader sense of our knowing, being and doing. And if we can't place you in the world, there's no way we can trust you or the advice that you have to give for us. So it does take time. And this goes for other non-Indigenous clients as well. Like it's not just our people. There are many non-Indigenous clients that would not trust the system due to their experiences. And we always say that if you can make things accessible to our people, then you make it accessible to everyone. Well, that kind of leads me into my next question in terms of, do you think the Indigenous framework could be used successfully with non-Indigenous people? Oh, absolutely. It absolutely could because at the end of the day, it's a human approach. It's a social justice approach and it's all about relationships, building trust from human to human, where no one is 
better or up the hierarchy. So it, it doesn't position clinicians as knowing everything. It positions clinicians and clients as equal experts. Clients are experts on their own lives and they bring this knowledge into the exchange. And clinicians are experts on fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and assessments and challenges and supports that are available. But we come together in an equal way to share knowledge, to exchange, and most importantly, to have reciprocity. So in that way, absolutely. It's, I think, all Australians with neurodiversity could absolutely benefit from that. Do you think this framework allows for both physicians and clients to come together as equal partners? Quite often in the past, one, particularly the physicians, might see they hold more knowledge than their clients rather than coming together as equals in terms of their knowledge. And that's what we're hoping to untangle because, yes, they've got knowledge in one area, but that's not knowledge of the family. That's not knowledge of the lived experience of that person with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. They have the knowledge around that. But the physician has the knowledge around, okay, what might work? So both knowledges need to be valued and respected equally if they are to come together and collaborate on the best approach. And that will make the clinician a better clinician because they are supporting the person or family living with FASD more meaningfully and more effectively because the solutions have been collaborated with the family of what might work, what might best support that particular family, knowing the resources that they have, knowing the access that they have and knowing the particular needs that they may have. And and we know that every FASD person and family is different. It's completely and utterly different. So for a one generic approach to be applied is quite useless. So we need to start recognising that it needs to be a collaboration. If our people with FASD or any people and family with FASD are to be best supported in our society, then we need more collaboration between those that are attending clinicians and the clinicians that are providing a service. I loved when you said that every FASD family has different symptoms and one approach won't fix all because that's very much true. I One of my favourite sayings is FASD is very much a spectrum-based disorder. No two people with FASD will ever have the exact same symptoms, behaviours. Exactly. And that's beautiful. Like, that's beautiful. It's what makes each person living with FASD unique. And, you know, and that's something to be celebrated if we can come together and identify the strengths and support them to live with the challenges that they may have. But there is no way you're going to know that unless you collaborate with the person and the family living with FASD because they are so varied. Exactly. And I think people don't see that in terms of this disorder or any disorder. And I get that. And I get why. you Human beings typically fear what they don't understand. And from that fear is always a negative outcome, which is either stigmatise or you, you just have negative views of that population. And it's it's always involves exclusion. So I think... We have to look at why there's fear 
And again, that's that's how having a strength-based approach can really support, like to understand that there's nothing here for you to fear, but everything for you to gain if you understand FASD and the uniqueness that it brings. Yeah, I think you've summed up this framework really well in, oh, terms, in terms of the strength-based approach. After authoring this article where you lay out the important issues and the framework what is the next step here? How do we go about implementing these ideas? So there's multiple layers around this. One is around how do we use the underpinning principles to train non-Indigenous clinicians in what they need to know, be and do on the ground to best support our community. On the other side, we need to get organisations like NACHO, so the National Aboriginal Community Control Health Organisation, to deliver training with the Aboriginal health workforce and the community that access NACHO services to train both the Aboriginal medical services as well as the community around what they need to know, be and do to access FASD knowledge supports, resources, assessments and diagnosis. So that is the beginning point around how do we translate this knowledge and make sure that it reaches the ground in a way that is meaningful for that particular community because it will look different in every community because every community is different. So how do we make that underpinning spirit of the framework relate to those on the ground in a practical way? I want to thank you, Nicole, for coming and chatting with me today and explaining out this framework to us, me and the listeners. It's really important and I hope we're able to implement these ideas with the people on the ground and move forward from here. Awesome. Thanks so much, Kurt. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pregnancy, Alcohol and FASD, The Surprising Reality. If you like this podcast episode, please show your support by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. We appreciate your feedback. All rights reserved. For more information about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, please visit NoFASD Australia's website, www.nofasd.org.au.